Welcome to Final Fantasy Weekly. I'm Drew Creaseman. And I'm Ira Creaseman. And on this episode, we'll be wrapping up our discussion about Final Fantasy IV with a particular focus on its overall artistic merits. But first, before we do that, because it's been a big, long game, a long journey, much like the adventurers themselves to get to this point, number of episodes we've spent here on Final Fantasy IV, of course, there were going to be some omissions. So, oh, brilliant, brother. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oh, humble and wise elder brother of mine. That's Uh, plenty. No, it's good to preface that with what are all the things that we messed up? (laughs) Right. Well, I'm not sure what all the things we messed up are, uh, but there are a few omissions that I want to talk about. I want to mention that one of my original concerns with doing this podcast when you first suggested it is that the internet can oftentimes be awful uh, Mm -hmm. because sometimes people on the internet don't feel like they need to treat other people on the internet like people. We have been fortunate in that uh, the people who have decided to interact with us via the various social medias that you have put us on have been uh, pretty fantastic. So mom, first, you know, shout out to mom. Hi, mom. Hi, mom. <laughs> she, of course, has been fun to talk to about these podcasts. Kat, who we have interacted with on Twitter, has been interesting to talk to. And Bill... Uh, I I mentioned Bill last because he's pointed out a couple of omissions that we definitely need to talk about before we uh, before we move on to the wrap-up. So Bill first mentioned that Palam and Porum, when they first start out as Cecil's allies for the Mount of Ordeals, they're spies for the Mycidians. The Elder sends these two children with Cecil the Dark Knight to spy upon him for the Mycidians. Yeah, we, we talk a bit about the Mycidians and their obvious distrust of Cecil, but yeah, that, that was a, a bad omission because it's definitely something about the game that I had remembered you know, being revealed later that they were sent along to keep an eye on him because they still did not fully trust this guy who totally wrecked their place in the first scene of the game. I think it speaks to their um, emotional and intellectual maturity. Well... You know, Porum's. Wait, which which one's the girl? Dang it, the sisters' uh, emotional maturity uh, and their their combined intellectual maturity because they are children and they're being trusted with such a with such an important mission. Yeah. So, and it's just another interesting wrinkle. Again, these are characters who, unlike in other Final Fantasy games before, and really unlike a lot of other video games before, have. A lot more layers, a lot more wrinkles that you would typically only see these kinds of twists involving the main character and or the main villain. But even as, you know, little screen time, ultimately as Palam and Porum get, it's funny looking back at it and thinking of it in those terms that they don't get a ton of time to be in the story, but they are impactful and memorable characters, absolutely, and it's because there are all of these elements to them. So bad on us to forget that part of it, the part that they were spies who end up coming over to the side. Man, we, one of our central themes has been getting past your original concept of what you think is important to understand this larger threat. So them going to spy on this guy, they end up sacrificing their lives for. 
though, again, as we talked about. And then this was another thing we didn't totally mention. We did mention that they come back, that the petrification does not stick. But we forgot to specifically mention, because it's kind of lightly done at the end of the game, but exactly how that happens. Right. The Elder of Mycidia is extraordinarily powerful and knowledgeable in the ways of magic, and he was able to unpetrify them even though Tella couldn't. Not sure how or why. It is kind of skated over. It's just, and we're unpetrified. Hooray! But it is it is worth noting that the Elder of Mycidia does have that power and knowledge that even one of our adventure mates, the great and wise Tella, did not have. Yeah. So, good to mention all that stuff. One other... Big yeah, I, I find this one to be especially egregious. We forgot to talk about Anna's ghost. <laughs> yeah. yeah, after they heal Rosa of her desert fever with the sand pearl, Edward goes out to sort of brood, as our characters do, uh, playing his harp at the lakeside under the moons, and Anna's ghost appears to him. And then he has to fight a, a sort of Sawin creature on his own and, and manages it. But and the important part here is that Anna's ghost encourages Edward to be a hero, to be an adventurer, to be brave, whereas Cecil and Rydia were uh, perhaps unkind in their encouragement. Anna's ghost knows who Edward is, knows how to encourage him to be a hero, uh, that his his brand of adventurer is is someone who's a little more gentle and requires if you want a performance out of a character like Edward, encouragement ought to be more understanding, ought to be a bit gentler. And she manages to do that. And I, I find this uh, particularly egregious on our part as an omission because we have talked about how sometimes characters are not always kind to each other and, and that sometimes the, you know, the aggression or the aggressive characters are the ones who are more lauded than the more passive characters. And this goes to undercut that particular observation. So I think it's important to recognize Anna's ghost and her part in all of this. And it further goes to to one of our previous observations in that speculative fiction can do things that non-speculative fiction can't necessarily. There could have been a lot of ways for Anna to talk to Edward from beyond the grave. You could have had a letter, you could have had a memory, but because it is speculative fiction, we get to have actually Anna come back from the dead and talk to Edward. Yeah, and like we were talking about at the end of the plot episodes, is that takes the human experience to the extremes. It makes those emotions that much more heightened because in real life, yeah, you'd be reading a letter. But what this made me think of was actually one of the things that we brought up as a contrast to speculative fiction was West Wing, one of our favorite just character dramas that tends to not have anything outside the realm of what can actually happen, except there is a ghost scene in West Wing. Plot spoilers for a show that took place years and years ago, but and maybe it's just an extraordinary hallucination. But the president right. has a conversation sort of with the ghost of Mrs. Lanningham, and it blurs the lines there for a moment, which I think is funny because I think it goes to show that exactly what we're talking about here. When you want to get to that extreme human emotion, so that can apply to pretty much everyone the fundamental core of humanity you you start bringing in things like ghosts and stuff that's 
impossible, but for the purpose, for the specific purpose of getting to that extreme emotion. I think one of the things that I just omitted from the conversation, not from the game, but was an observation about Rydia along these lines. I think she's the perfect symbol for why speculative fiction is important, particularly in this story to talking about getting over tribalism for, you know, her entire tribe has had a genocide committed against them, except for her. So not a possibility, but an idea we understand because genocide is a real thing. Because this happens, she gets to embody something that we've all felt being alone feeling secluded, feeling like you don't fit in. And an extreme version of xenophobia that people might feel toward those who can summon monsters or can do magic. There's so much about her. Even the fact that she goes from a little girl into a grown woman, not something that's possible without speculative fiction, you know, in the time frame that this story takes place, everything that happens to her from her very first scene to her last, is impossible. But she stands as a symbol for what we've talked about over and over again. This game is about getting over tribalism. And she is the one who has to do that because she has no tribe left. But she could take the other route and decide, why should I help the people of this tiny blue planet? Why do I care? They've massacred all my people. Who are my people? Who am I fighting for? Yeah, she could have easily been a character who, I think we've mentioned this before, uh, who could have become the bad guy or a bad guy because of what happened to her and and why should she care about anybody else. Or she could have just gone off and lived on her own. Uh, she could have made a place for her somewhere on that planet where nobody else could bother her. Or she could have stayed in the Fey March with the monsters. But you're right, she had to get over her tribalism and and choose to help people in general and and i think just the way that you know how she serves the story is is a great example of things you cannot do without fantasy and or science fiction that really do get at some big ideas and some important themes i also think as more of a storytelling mechanism that the kingdom of baron is a perfect red herring. We talked about why not conclude the story with it just being, you know, Golbez was kind of the bad guy, and then you stop him, and you stop the bad kingdom from doing the bad thing, which is a story in lots of fiction and can be riveting, absolutely. But I think the fact that the kingdom of Baron is a red herring, that they end up, it's like, no, it's not the kingdom that's evil. It's that it's being mind controlled at this particular moment by, you know, this much larger evil force. And if you have the conclusion of your story be just, well, the bad country was taken down and now it's being ruled by good people. You've missed the point. You're not driving home a theme about why tribalism is bad. You're just, you know, furthering the way things were. So I I think that in particular is like you're led to believe throughout most of the game that your enemy is the Kingdom of Baron, or more specifically, that your enemy is Golbez. And in the final fight, Golbez fights on your side. Right. Really driving that theme home. That might be undercut a bit. Well, no, it's not. I was going to say that might be undercut a bit because then it becomes about the Lunarians versus the humans. But it's not even that because Fusoya and Kluya are clearly on the side of not committing genocide. 
So I, I think you're right. The kingdom of Baron is a good red herring for because it almost becomes about tribalism against a one particular king and kingdom, and it turns out, nope, we all just still need to work together. Speaking of Kluya's role in all of this, that leads us, I think, directly into another thing that we talked about a bit. We talked about how these types of stories and how Final Fantasy particularly does this on purpose, but they tend to mirror ancient folklore, the oldest stories that we know. And one of the ways, you mentioned Kluya as a Prometheus-type character, but it's very common in mythology for there to be lead characters who are demigods or in some way related to the gods. And Cecil Harvey exists in this tradition, which I think is really interesting and worth pointing out, that he, as the son of a Lunarian, who are essentially godlike to the people of this planet, and a human woman is very similar to Hercules of ancient Greek mythology, to Sigurd mm-hmm. of ancient Norse mythology, these characters who a lot of their trials are in discovering who they are, overcoming in some ways their demigod nature, forging their own new path because they are both one thing and another, and that these characters tend to be really good at reflecting what we've talked about, yin and yang of human nature. And that's the fact that Cecil works in that tradition of characters I find really interesting and compelling. Another character from Final Fantasy who who works in that area, who we'll talk a lot about when her game comes around, is Tara Branford. She also is the daughter or the, the progeny of a, a metaphysical man and a human woman. Maduin of the Espers, her father, uh, is, is the deity-like character, and her mother, named Madonna, which we've mentioned before, which I'm pretty sure means she's, uh, she's the Jesus figure of that story. Yeah, she, and she runs through a lot of these same ideas. You know, who am I? What does it mean to be uh, half of one and half of the other? And then she has a whole other speculative fiction line where she's got to deal with her memories or her emotions having been dampened for much of her life. So yeah, it's it's always a, an interesting way to to examine humanity through the eyes of someone who is raised a human but with the powers of a god. Right, and I think that's just another way of recognizing that these stories are purposefully tied to those ancient myths and that tells us that at their core there is supposed to be moral and central themes because that's what those stories were about. They were about teaching people about the world and about understanding the world around them and that's really what Final Fantasy games are about. And especially this one I think took a huge step in that direction which I think leads us now to our, our big conversation here. Something We've done with each of the other games, breaking this thing down. And again, remember, we're not analyzing it as much as a video game. That too, because that's what it is. So we obviously are taking that into account. But we're thinking of it more as a piece of art. How does it succeed in five different categories that we've laid out before? It's cultural commentary, its impact on the industry, how well it's crafted, its cultural impact, and its flaws.
And when we go through each one, we'll, if you haven't listened before, we'll talk about what each of those mean, starting with cultural commentary, because we've been talking about it throughout this entire series of episodes about this game. There's a lot of cultural commentary. I don't know that there's any we haven't touched on just yet. There probably <laughs> is. There's so much in it. I think that the only thing maybe left to say is I think it succeeds in everything that it's trying to say and does so in a way that if it's limited at all, it's by the technology it originally came out on and it could maybe be fleshed out a bit in terms of its cultural commentary. But what's there, what we've been talking about, as I've said, these themes are resonating in Game of Thrones, which is maybe the most popular television show of all time. And, you know, Final Fantasy IV did a lot of this same stuff, but 25 years ago. I think we've done a lot to examine the, the tribalism versus inclusivity theme in previous episodes and this episode now. The other big cultural commentary I want to comment on is the feminism and femininity that run through Final Fantasy IV. We talked about uh, Rosa perhaps being a bit stereotypical in her feminine attributes. Uh, she tends to be softer, quieter. Porum of Palam and Porum, uh, she is the more responsible uh, of the two. She's the white mage, uh, so she's the, she's the healer. Uh, she's the more uh, emotionally balanced. Uh, Rydia perhaps bucks the trend a bit in that she is more uh, aggressive and outgoing. But we, we talked about that big moment on the big whale uh, when, when Cecil tries to tell Rosa and Rydia to go home and let the boys handle the fight. It's this weird moment of being protective of, of the patriarchy, trying to protect the women. I don't think it's done in a malicious or negative way. I don't think Cecil's trying to be especially patriarchal, but it certainly comes off that way to me. And Edge gets in on this a little bit too. And I think they're trying to protect the women they love. They don't want to see them hurt. But at the same time, Rosa and Rydia are able to undercut that by, by taking agency of their own and, and making a decision to go with them. And furthermore, in kicking ass in that last fight. So... The feminism and, and femi or femininity can be a, a lionized, a valorized set of attributes, and I think that is shown largely in Rosa throughout. So I like that as another commentary on culture. Agreed. And again, one, I think they succeed by striking a nuanced balance. Again, our, our friend Bill wrote in saying, I'm not so sure that it's fair to say that Cecil's being chauvinist because he really cares about them. And this is one of those things where we, we all know how much on this podcast I love my definitions of two different words to make a distinction like this. But I think that's the fine line between being a little bit chauvinist and being a sexist. Right. Cecil is not a sexist. He clearly has respect and love for these women. He just, his desire to protect them and therefore assume that they cannot protect themselves is a bit chauvinist and needs to be pointed out to him and is and is done so in a way that it allows our hero to be vulnerable and imperfect and it allows the female characters their own agency to say, screw you, I don't care if you are about to be the savior of the world, you don't right. get to tell us what to do. 
it's done exceptionally well. I think, as I've said, I think a few times on this podcast, one of the reasons why this game was received and celebrated as much as it has been over the years. In fact, let's get into that point. The second on our list here, industry impact. One of the ways that you can sort of measure this is in just looking at the landscape of role-playing games after it. This game, especially the active time battle system and the inclusion of serious mature themes in role-playing games and characters, deep character casts of nuanced and interesting people, this was kind of the start of that. One of the things that I think is most interesting here is that, so Final Fantasy IV, as we talked about at the very beginning of the conversation, is listed on a lot of top 100 lists, sometimes ranking as the highest Final Fantasy game of all time, sometimes ranking in people's top 10 video games of all time. When it came out, it was highly rated. In fact, the overall average for its Super Nintendo score was an 87, according to game rankings. Uh, EGM gave it a 32 out of 40 at the time. Famitsu gave it a 36 out out of 40 40 at the time. Because, as I have discovered, they have four different people Uh, rank it out of 10. So Famitsu's panel of four gave it ratings of 9, 9, 10, and 8, adding up to a score of 36 out of 40. If you're thinking, wow, that's not even that close to being a 40 out of 40, that was the second highest score for any game Famitsu gave out that year, only to The Legend of Zelda a link to the past. On the Super Nintendo at the time, GamePro did give it a perfect five out of five score. Game Spy gave it four and a half stars. Uh, and then you've got some Game Boy Advance scores that was generally well received on that as well. But it didn't sell as many copies as six or certainly games like seven, 10, you know, the more recent ones. Its legacy grew as people understood it more in retrospect. And that is always a sign of a great piece of art. Of course, the obvious go-to example being Van Gogh. Not even understood during his lifetime. Sometimes great art. It's not possible for something that isn't great art to be better understood 20 years after it was released than it was when it was released. How do you mean? It's not possible? Yeah, if something is just bland and has nothing to offer, it's not going to be discovered 20 years later. If you have no original, interesting ideas, if you didn't impact the industry in any way, the signs of your impact on that industry won't be seen. They won't be visible. Nothing will have ever occurred. You know Final Fantasy IV impacted the industry because you can see some of the elements that were introduced in it still being used in games today. Okay. Moving into our next category, crafted as art. In this section, this game is truly only limited at all by the technology it was on. It excels across the board as we've discussed in its artistic realm, in the music realm, in storytelling, in characterization, in having something to say. It is detailed and as deep 
as any Super Nintendo game you're going to find, maybe outside of Final Fantasy VI and Chrono Trigger. And still, I don't think it's necessarily not as deep as those games, depending on how much you're willing to dig into it. Some people, I think, fairly hold it as high, if not higher, than those games. I do not. But in terms of the way it's crafted, I cannot make a compelling argument that it's not as well crafted as those. I think the themes in the other ones strike me a little bit deeper, a little more. And that's why, for me, well, I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but Final Fantasy IV doesn't quite make it into my top tier of Final Fantasy games. <laughs> uh, that is that is a fool's errand you're running there with the with the tiers of Final Fantasy games. I, I don't know, I don't even know how I would begin such a thing. <laughs> it's certainly not easy, but I think that just the fact that it was held back a little bit by its technology, and we'll talk about the final category here, the flaws. I think the false deaths throughout the game, while they don't derail it, while they don't hinder the experience really for me in any way, they did kind of set up this expectation that events in these video games, as I said, this kind of set the stage for mature storytelling in video games, which meant it also set the stage for inconsequential sure. fake-out yeah. deaths, events not really having consequences, and that is, I think, part of the... That, that for a number of years after this would become kind of the norm and not in a good way. And so it's not entirely this game's fault, but the fact that you never get to choose the characters that are in your party and that a lot of the plot is contrived in order to bring people in and out of your battle right. party to some degree. You know, like we said, it doesn't ruin it for me, but I think it does lessen the impact of a number of its most memorable moments. The fact that Palom and Porum come back, Yang comes back a couple of times, Sid comes back. I remember all of those death scenes and as we omitted, I don't remember them coming back. I remember that they came back. Yeah, it, when they come back, it's almost, it, it's usually in the context of another bigger event, like getting rescued or, or, or something else. And it's sort of, oh, and by the way, I'm back. The other, With the exception of Rydia, as we talked right. about. Rydia's, Rydia's comeback is, is amazing. It's pretty great. The other flaw to my mind is that it's a bit, all right, I don't want to, I don't want it to be like I'm the guy who hates the linear games, but this game never really opens up in the way a lot of other Final Fantasies do. And I would say that's actually fairly consistent from from 1 through 4. It's like, here's the next thing to do, here's the next thing to do, and there's not a lot of, well, you could wander around and see what else there is about the world. You you can, like, you, when you get the airship, you can you can go and do various things. The only But the only real other sort of side adventures to do are to get the summons in Final Fantasy IV, and that's it, it's a bit small compared to what I was used to because, again, Final Fantasy VI was my first real big Final Fantasy. So, so even something like... I mean, people complain about Final Fantasy XIII being the most linear, but even that opens up into the world of Pulse eventually. Final Fantasy IV never really does, and I think that if it did, if that was one of the innovations of Final Fantasy IV... Uh, it would be even more widely lauded for it. It doesn't really take away from the experience for me, 
But it's worth noting that this is when that sort of stuff begins to happen in video games, and that it doesn't happen in 4 is is worth noting. Yeah, I think so. I think another level to this, when I start getting, you asked a, a moment ago, how do you even begin to break down tiers and rank Final Fantasy games? Because it can be very tough, especially if you're trying to do it objectively and not just based on your own personal feelings or attachments to different games. One of the things I like to think about with all different versions of art, movies, TV shows, video games, when it starts to get to that next level, that granular, how do I separate these things, is thinking about uniqueness. And I used to think of it more on a kind of spectrum with two ends of uniqueness but I see it more now as this kind of weird complicated square so stick with me maybe this isn't too complicated but hang on hang on before like I like where this is going because we've had this conversation and I want you to get to this goofy goofy scale you've come up with but before we do that I think we skip number four cultural impact yeah Uh, I think we went right from crafted as art to flaws so, so let's talk about number four here, cultural impact. How has Final Fantasy IV impacted the culture of Final Fantasy, of video games, of the world in general? What do you think? I think, again, very successful, especially when you consider the timing of the game's release. There are still people dressing up as Cecil, as Rydia, as Rosa. They're still listed among favorite characters as Kane. Absolutely, that character design yeah, has absolutely. stood the test of time. A lot of this game has stood the test of time. You see people dressed up as these characters at Comic-Cons. You hear countless variations of the music. Fan art is still very popular. This still, and in fact, it's become a kind of, if I may editorialize a little bit here, a hipster Final Fantasy fan's favorite Final Fantasy. It's been, (laughs) it's become very much in vogue to say that 4 was really the best one because it was before it got super commercialized and some people have come around on thinking six is overrated because there are people like probably more like you and me who think that game is right yeah but (laughs) (laughs) i it does seem to be still as popular today as it has ever been and i think that's been helped through its remakes and re-releases i think it's been helped through things like dissidia for example there are three characters from this game in the base launch of dissidia i think that's more than from any of the other games right yeah uh so who is it cecil it's cecil in two forms cecil in two Uh, forms kane and Golbez. and Golbez, right yeah i think uh on on the impact of or on the culture of final fantasy final fantasy 4 has a, a large one as it were the characters who get to show up in World of Final Fantasy. So yeah, it's had a a large impact on the culture of Final Fantasy in general. And I think a big reason for that is something we talked about at the very beginning and something that transitions us nicely right back into where I was jumping the gun on this scale, (laughs) which is that for me, this is the first game in the series that really started to define Final Fantasy as something else, as something not derivative of Tolkien and Gygax and whatever else. I mean, it's still borrowing on ideas, absolutely, but it's starting to combine them in ways we've never seen before. And that helps it rank very highly on this spectrum for me, which I used to think of 
as, and I'm going to use four different movies for here. I'll, I'll use two, but well-known movies. I used to think of this as the Speed Racer to Ocean's Eleven scale. <laughs> I love that. You are such a I know, right? People go, <laughs> what is he talking about? Well, to me, Speed Racer is compelling almost entirely because of its uniqueness. Now, I happen to enjoy that movie for a couple of personal reasons, but... I think it's fairly... The fighting cars, man. <laughs> fighting cars. It's so cool. But right. Getting to that point, I like to every once in a while say to myself, is this something I've never seen before? Show me something I've never right. seen before. And while Speed Racer right. doesn't have the best writing and the best acting and you know certain structural plot elements that tend to make for great filmography, it is still, to this day an experience I can't get anywhere else. And that's one of the reasons why, though I would never objectively rank that movie super high, I'd probably have to max out if we're thinking, I mean, roughly here on a scale of 10. I know this stuff is always weird, but like a 7 if I'm trying to be objective. But on my own personal scale, it might be a 9 or a 10 just because I can't get fighting cars anywhere else. Right. It's so wild. And the colors and the the artistic output is is just incredible on that Right. Film. Then, on the other end of that spectrum, and I'm not picking on this because I loves me some Ocean's Eleven, but I think with Ocean's Eleven, what you've got is a perfectly well-done, structured, well-acted, well-written film Mm -hmm. with no original ideas. In fact, literally, it's a remake of something that's been done before, but, you know, we've seen a million heist movies, and it's built... Right. The same way. Right. It is the epitome of a heist movie. It takes the heist movie and it gets some very charming gentlemen to play the leads. And it, it does it extraordinarily well. But we've seen that we've seen the heist movie a gazillion times and it tops out perhaps the heist movie scale. But it is still just a heist movie on the uniqueness scale. Right. Then I thought maybe I'm being a little bit unfair because still no one's handing oscars to oceans 11 either it's just i think we can all agree it's well executed but it's not even necessarily going for great i think a better example of something that is exceptional but still lacks originality so our our fourth corner of our spectrum or a third corner excuse me of our spectrum now is the film the departed i think that film excellently acted written directed the music is fantastic the structure is nearly perfect but Mm -hmm. there's nothing in that movie that i haven't seen before in goodfellas or the godfather or a number of other crime dramas the devil's own there uh, there are a million movies i can think of that work in that way the departed and or maybe like the godfather are just the best Right. So so they top out the scale of the crime drama. Right. Genre, as it were. And I think... Even though they throw President Bartlett off a roof, you're saying <laughs> on a uniqueness scale, uh, it ranks fairly low. Indeed. But still, I think, fairly is deserving of its accolades in some ways. I think... Sure. What always ends up standing out more to me is the fourth pillar of this idea, which is when something is so expertly crafted, but also 
carries a ton of ideas of its own, gives you a unique experience. And the example I'm going to give is Blade Runner. I don't know that okay. it was as lauded okay. at its time as The Departed was at its, and I think that's a co- commentary we've been making regularly about the merits of speculative fiction, and I think the wider world is getting more and more used to the idea that speculative fiction can be considered great, but I think thinking about it in these terms really helps because you come to understand that it shouldn't just be about something that is really well done if it has no original ideas. Final Fantasy IV exists closer to that Blade Runner end of the spectrum because it's really well crafted and it has a lot of great ideas and it's an experience that is unique unto itself. A traditional fantasy setting where a spaceship shows up and you go to the moon. Can you imagine if Aragorn and Gimli and... Legolas discovered a spaceship. (laughs) That's tough to discover that working. But this game, you can't argue it doesn't work. We've run over the numbers. It might not be your cup of tea, but there's no objective way to look at this game and be like, ah, it's broken. It's really bad. This is terrible. Of course it's not. It wouldn't be celebrated this way if it was all of those things. So to pull off a shift that would be relatively equivalent to the Fellowship of the Lord of the Rings discovering a spaceship and make it work. Right. That gets you high on the Blade Runner end of my spectrum. I might need you to draw a picture, because while I think I understand, you and I have only talked about it, you know, over the phone and and, and on the podcast now. Yeah, we might need a picture that we can put on our various social medias to to be clear where we're plotting these four pillars of spectrum. Right, and the funny thing is, I think you can be at any end of that spectrum and be a really quality experience. I think, and we talked about this just a little bit before we came on, but I think the place you want to avoid is being in the middle. Right. Is where you're you're maybe a few interesting ideas but nothing nothing groundbreaking, so you're almost losing like some of your interesting original ideas because you're only mediocrely created and therefore kind of forgettable which is how i think of most procedural crime dramas on television <laughs> i'm telling you agent gibbs is a cool character and i would like to hang out with that team and while each individual uh each individual crime each crime of the week or whatever maybe doesn't matter that much to the it's yeah it, it is all about the characters and so yeah, dan Harmon's a, a cool actor and agent gibbs is a cool character and Mr. Monk is a cool character, and and Magnum P.I. is a cool character, but you're right. right. The, That's where they get their uniqueness, yeah. is if their main character is compelling enough, because it's not in their plot or themes or structure. Right. And, you know, that's okay. Right. It, it makes for a good way to pass 40 minutes. You know, you get to go see Gibbs and the team solve another murder, and, and it reaffirms my idea that the, the system is working for the good guys. Yeah. Uh, but I think that all is also what qualifies it as better entertainment than, as we've laid out here, art. Right. Uh, a piece of art should seek to do a bit more than that. I agree. It doesn't. They don't really even try to reach for those levels. It's not about making an interesting cultural impact or an interesting commentary on the culture, uh, or even really impacting the the industry of television or procedural crime dramas. It's more about here are these guys you like, you know, scoring one for the good guys. 
and that's it and that's fine but that's it right so i think to you know wrap up our conversation again kind of looking forward to some of the games in the future why would i not quite rank final fantasy 4 as high as some of the others because as well as it does on that blade runner spectrum the games in the future would just go crazy out there and so i think for me it keeps it out of my top five final fantasy games but is probably in that next grouping sixth or seventh maybe eighth place as i think as low as i could possibly put it and that's without really ranking them something we're going to do at some point i'm going to force you to try to do this or at least comment on my list i'll, I'll make you comment on mine i but think it would I, be more interesting for me to comment on your list than to try to come up with one of my own. But I do think, if I were to ask you right now, off the top of your head... Oh, for goodness sake. <laughs> don't you think Final Fantasy IV would be in your top five? I think if I were to create a list, against my better judgment, that the factors, the themes uh, that I tend to prioritize in the art that I appreciate most, the storytelling art that I appreciate most, Final Fantasy IV covers and excels in a lot of those priorities, which is perhaps a way of talking around, I would probably have seven or eight top five Final Fantasies, and Final Fantasy IV would almost certainly be in those nine or ten top five Final Fantasies. That's all how they got bigger and bigger. Did it? Is that what happened? I may have missed that part. <laughs> I strongly identify with, and, and, this, and this story strongly resonates with me it is one that i come back to again and again i'll i'll play it on my my game boy advance that's still kicking around i'll probably play it again later this year now that you've got me thinking about it well there you go so i think we'd like to wrap up with some prepared final thoughts Final Fantasy IV is a unique story that would be lauded if it was written today. It takes a bold risk in its conclusion, which could be seen, and often is, as a tonal mistake. But even very few who would take issue with that risk would claim it derails the entire experience. A number of other elements resemble those often used for cheap storytelling. Mind control, prophecies, fake-out deaths. But instead, each serve a broader, complex theme that reflects human nature and society. Our heroes wrestle with inner darkness and newfound light only to have their perception of their existence obliterated and the meaning of their lives called into question. A little girl with a traumatic childhood becomes a powerful young woman with the aid of the god serving as an ambassador between human and monster. A coward becomes a great king when he learns to sacrifice for his friends. A renowned warrior puts aside vengeance to work alongside those responsible for the destruction of everything he loved in order to serve the greater good. Wise and skilled wizards find that they too have something to learn. And all the people of a tiny blue planet use their love of friends and family to come together instead of tearing each other apart.
thank you so much for listening. And remember that if you just can't wait for the next episode, first of all, we really appreciate that. And second of all, you can go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash ffweekly and find everything we've got there recorded all the way up through the very end of Final Fantasy VII. And if you are interested in more video game talk, a little bit of Final Fantasy stuff, but a lot of things outside the Final Fantasy multiverse, like Horizon Zero Dawn or Child of Light, Indivisible, things like that. Also, I've got a professional wrestling podcast, talk Star Wars and MCU and DCEU. Also with my brother, Ira and I are going through the entire DCEU and battling each other over those films. So if that's something you think you might be interested in, head over to patreon.com slash DC Productions.